Good morning, and welcome to Visionaries. I'm John LaBelle, your host. You'll find us here every Monday at prn.fm at 10 a.m. on Visionaries who talk about creativity in the arts, science, technology, culture, and spirituality, and about how we can enrich the world and ourselves by tapping into the energies of the cosmos. And along the way, we talk with some of the most interesting people about the world we live in and the worlds they are creating for tomorrow. And before we go forward, just a reminder, all of our past shows are available at visionaries.podbean.com, V-I-S-I-O-N-A-R-I-E-S dot P-O-D-B-E-A-N is in Nancy, dot com. And we've had some great shows in the past. My guests have included Mike Solver, an architect and student of consciousness, Bill Catavalis, another architect, designer, futurist, uh, right now doing water architecture, building architecture out of water. That's pretty abundant uh, stuff. And uh, Bill has chairs in the Museum of Modern Art, major figure over the decades. You want to catch that one. John David Ebert, cultural and media critic and brilliant analyst of movies. His current, lots of books, but his current series is Scene by Scene. So he'll look at Star Wars, Scene by Scene, or Apocalypse Now, Scene by Scene. There's a half dozen of them. We did a show on technological optimism way back. I had a guest, Natisha Vita Moore. And Natasha is a poster figure for transhumanism. So uh, go look at uh, natasha.cc. You'll find out all about her. We did a show on Joseph Campbell with the director of the Campbell Foundation. I hope to do more about Campbell. Very influential on me. We had Louis Serrano, a pioneer of artificial intelligence and an engineer for Robotics Without Borders. And uh, I am uh, following Lewis on this new miracle technology Facebook. And I think he's now director of research for a robotics company. So any of these people you can look up, you can follow and see what they're doing. Uh, so those are some back shows. Again, they're on PRN uh, archives at visionaries.podbean.com. A little bit about me. I'm a professor of architecture at Pratt Institute in Brooklyn. So <laughs> Brooklyn used to be, well, you know, we're in Brooklyn. And now it's the hottest place on the planet. We have one of our programs is in our Manhattan building. Students come from abroad and discover that they'll be studying in Manhattan. And they say, we thought we were going to be studying in Brooklyn. So apparently Brooklyn's a really cool place. I've been there for teaching there for a few decades, so I guess I appreciate that. I'm the author of a book on visionary creativity. We'll be talking a bit about that today. You can get it on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. 
And I blog at visionarycreativity.com, and you can find out more about me at johnlobel.com. I'm having a little dialogue with some people at my school about what we at Pratt, where I teach, should be doing and, you know, how we should be responding to the future of design, architecture, city building. Cities are going up like mushrooms around the world. And what do we, you know, how, what's our grip on that? How do we understand that? So you'll find a whole bunch of posts at johnlobel.com where I'm discussing this. Any feedback would be welcome. And you can friend me on Facebook and follow me on Twitter. So today, let's try some free-range radio. Usually I have a guest. But today I want to talk about visionary creativity. And I'm going to use Friedrich Nietzsche's The Parable of the Camel, the Lion, and the Child and the dragon, and we'll talk about that. So that led me to think, uh, Nietzsche talks about this in his book, Thus Spoke Zarathustra, and so I was thinking about books. Pardon my digressions. So what's a book? And, you know, we're... Uh, well, you know, a book's a thing with pages between covers, and you can now get electronic versions of them. But in the real sense, a book, a real book, not just something put together as a Christmas gift, is something that an individual author has thought about, is passionate about, maybe put a year, two, three years into thinking about it, researching it, coming to a point of view uh, about it, which they then want to pass on to other individuals which they do through the writing of the book. Well, we can question that for today. <laughs> are there individuals, are there points of view? Are, is our electronic world changing all that? But in the meantime, that's a thought about what a book is. And then I was, uh, speaking of things that aren't books, I was online looking at brain pickings. So, excuse me while I blow my nose. Excuse me, so um, brain pickings. And I'm going to recommend some books. I'm going to recommend some websites. And Brain Pickings is by Maria Popova. Very interesting figure. She is a originally Bulgarian. And she graduated college here and got a job. And there were things that interested her. And she started putting together ideas and sending email links to seven people in her office. And people picked up on them, her emailings. And now she has seven million followers at Brain Pickings. So I strongly recommended it. And it's a real education. She'll look at key classic figures and ask questions like, um, you know, what, what are we to make of uh, people like, well, one I'm going to be talking about, Friedrich Nietzsche, or about philosophers, about poets, uh, and then she'll have these essays, and you can get a real college education just following her thinking. Well, a real recent one has the thoughts of Neil deGrasse Tyson, who we all know from his TV appearances, 
talking about cosmology. He's sort of, uh, pardon me for putting it this way, the Carl Sagan of the moment. And in fact, he even redid Carl, Sagan, Carl Sagan's Cosmos series. And they have his eight most important books here in his uh, a recent posting of his. And I would not agree with this list. Uh, yes, they're all important. But let's get more contemporary and more hip. So he has the Bible, The System of the World by Isaac Newton, Origin of Species by Darwin, Gulliver's Travels, Age of Reason by Thomas Paine, Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith, Art of War and the Prince. Well, they're all important, but there's a lot of other stuff that we should be following, and maybe we'll drop in on some of those thoughts for books today. Later on, we'll try taking some phone calls, so if you want to write down a phone number, 888-874-4888. So let's hear from you maybe about what do you consider the most influential books, the most important books in putting together your views. But now this idea of the camel, the lion, and the child, and it's a parable by Friedrich Nietzsche in his book, Zarathustra. And he says that first, you're a lion. And the lion, I'm sorry, <laughs> first you're a camel. And the camel says, put a load on me. And he kneels down and is loaded. And by that he means taking on the traditions of your culture, learning your discipline, mastering your discipline, learning your culture, mastering the classics of your culture. But then this camel runs out into the desert and becomes a lion. And if it was a well-loaded camel, it becomes a very potent lion. And the lion's job is to slay a dragon. And the dragon's name is Thou Shalt. And on every scale of the dragon is written Thou Shalt. In other words, what our traditions demand of us. And Nietzsche's going to suggest we have to overthrow that. So before we go on with this parable, uh, let's step back. And a few months ago, I pick up my New York Times, and there's an op-ed by Adam Grant. And it opens... They learn to read by age two. Well, first of all, the title is How to Raise a Creative Child. Step one, back off. <laughs> so, you know, I think that's really pertinent for, uh, for me and my, my, where I am. I'm at Pratt Institute, which is an art, architecture, and design school. And, you know, hopefully we're promoting creativity, but I'm not so sure. So Adam Grant writes... They learn to read by age two, play Bach at four, breeze through calculus at six, and speak foreign languages fluently by eight. Their classmates shudder with envy. Their parents are joy at winning the lottery. But to paraphrase T.S. Eliot, their careers tend to end, not with a bang, but a whimper. And he goes on to describe the difference between accomplished people and creative people. And then he looks, for example, at Nobel Prize winners, and Nobel Prize winners have to go on uh, beyond being just accomplished and also introduce something new. And he finds very interestingly 
that the people who do win Nobel Prizes are far more likely than those of their contemporaries in their field to be doing other things beside their discipline, to, if they're scientists, to be studying dance or art or literature or painting or being a photographer or whatever. And you can see how ideas are sort of put together. You'll encounter something in your field and everybody's at a standstill about that issue. You know, it doesn't make sense what to do about it. Or everybody in the field might not even notice it. One of the things I like to say to my students is, think about what everybody in your field assumes is true, but doesn't seem quite right to you. Now, usually when we encounter that, we suppress it. Well, you know, I'm not going to stick my neck out about this minor little quibble that uh, nobody is really under, you know, nobody else is questioning. But maybe that's the thread, that when you pull on that thread, the whole sweater unravels. And we can see how key figures did that. There are these little questions, you know, that Einstein was pulling at that thread. There's this little problem of the non-addition of velocity of light, that if a light source was coming toward you, light went 186,000 miles per second. If it's going away from you, it goes at 186,000 miles per second. Shouldn't do that. And the physicists said, well, that's a problem, and then got on with what they were doing. And Einstein said, well, let's think about that. And in so doing, he pulled at the thread and unraveled all of Newtonian physics. It all fell apart. Thud. <laughs> and he created a totally new physics relativity. He did the same thing as one of the pioneers of quantum theory, where the radiation coming from black bodies wasn't quite right. And, <clears throat> you know, very interestingly, Einstein pioneered quantum theory, but then didn't like it. <laughs> you know, he said, I don't accept this. This is too weird. And, and at that point, never made any more scientific progress for the, the rest of his long life. He, he was unable to make any more breakthroughs because he stuck with something. He wouldn't, uh, he wouldn't pull at another thread. So think about the people who, well, my school, Students have been getting better and better. You know, we, we're, we're really uh, top, in a lot of ways, the top art and design school in the world. And we're in various measures. Uh, our departments are in the top 10 or the top one or two. And one of the ways you get there is by taking students with higher SATs. Now, what can we expect about students with higher SATs? I bet they didn't tell their teachers they were full of baloney. <laughs> you don't get letters of recommendation. You don't get high grades. You know, you don't get high SATs by looking at it and saying, this question's stupid. <laughs> I remember doing that. <laughs> uh, I didn't get that high. Well, they, you know, they were okay, but it was, you know, this stuff doesn't make sense. Why am I bothering to do this? Well, that's how you get into Ivy schools. Oh, <laughs> So anyway, if you think about it, we have this idea of mastering our culture. And 
the it's suggested in this essay the students who question it are not going to be the ones who um you know are playing Bach by age six or whatever. And in looking at this, I came across a quote from Woodrow Wilson, and he says, it's the business of a university to impart the right thought of the world, the thought through which it has tested and established the principles which have stood through the seasons and become at length part of the immemorial wisdom of the race. Okay, so... The university becomes a repository of knowledge, of the wisdom of humankind. Yeah, I agree with that, but I think that's only step one. How about to question and need be to overthrow the immemorial wisdom of the race? Such questioning and overthrowing define real creativity, what I call visionary creativity. Well, I've been looking at some books recently and some mega bestsellers. So right now, really hot is Angela Duckworth's book, Grit. So I read the book and really terrific stuff. Totally agree with everything that she says. So the book came out in May of this year, Grit. The Power of Passion and Perseverance. And she has some real insight into some key things. And one of them is that, well, first of all, she's a terrifically accomplished person. She did well in school. She worked at a major consulting firm. She left that to teach in inner city schools. So she really knows what she's talking about. And now she's a heavy-duty professor at a major Ivy department. And she talks about how stick is more important than brilliance or genius or IQ or other things. But then she's looking at football players, special forces in the military, students in universities, and everything she says is true. And in fact, one of her insights is that we have been blaming for the failure of students in uh, many of our students in our school systems, we blame the teachers, we blame the school. She says, what about blaming the students, that a lack of perseverance, a lack of stick But she's only gone as far as the camel. She's only gone as far as describing people who master what they are studying. Same thing with Malcolm Gladwell's major bestseller, Outliers. So I'm a super Gladwell fan, can't wait for the next book, immediately read it. He's a brilliant storyteller, terrific writer. But I think we should read Gladwell with a really fine-tuned ear to what exactly are his cultural politics. What is he saying? What underlies these stories? So uh, you might know his books, Blank or The Tipping Point, or most recently, David and Goliath. But Outliers is probably one of his most important books. And there he looks at exceptional figures, but then he tells us they're not exceptional due to talent or genius or creative insight, but due to perseverance. Now, 
Gladwell did not originate the 10,000 hours things. That's a, a psychologist did that, and he's simply quoting that work. But we associate it with Gladwell, and that's the notion that we find in numerous fields, and this is, you know, a lot of studies are done to establish this, that people who master chess, tennis, music, being musicians, etc., put in 10,000 hours of deliberate practice before they get to their superstardom mastery. And deliberate practice is specifically defined. It doesn't just mean repeating over and over what you've already mastered, but pushing into what you have not mastered, making mistakes, figuring out what those mistakes are, working through them till you've solved them so you can push on further. So people who have done that for 10,000 hours, which means about 10 years of, you know, 10 hours a day uh, work, chess champions, again, tennis players, the, the top ones in the world have done that. But we look at this and we find out that these are not the people that overthrow their fields, that bring us new fields. And so once again, Gladwell is sticking with the not going beyond the camel, taking on the load, mastering your culture, mastering your discipline. But for creativity, that's only step one. So some other books in the field, one I like to needle my students about, Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother. <laughs> so, well, you know, and we have a lot of Asian students these days in schools, uh, particularly directly from China, not just uh, Asian Americans, but we have a lot of students coming from China. So I like to ask my students, so how many of you have a, uh, a tiger mom? <laughs> They're kind of reluctant to speak up, but uh, a lot of them do. And again, that's, you know, no play dates, homework all the time. And that's not going to foster creativity, you know. It's not going to foster thinking laterally, tying in other fields. One of the, uh, another book that I'm going to mention as we go through this is Flourish, A New Understanding of Happiness and Well-Being by Martin Seligman. Now, Seligman's a wonderful figure, founded the field of positive psychology. So psychology had, well, first of all, you know, through the 60s, psychology was a disaster. It was behaviorism. And what it said was, there's no inner mind. There's no thinking going on. The only thing that counts is what you do. You know, running your rats through mazes, running people through mazes. And it totally screwed up the field for several decades. And then it, it um, uh, clinical psychology addresses people who are really in distress, neurosis, psychosis, and how can we alleviate their distress. But Seligman said, nobody's talking about what makes a positive, happy, flourishing life. And he founds the field of positive psychology. So his book, Flourish, A Visionary New Understanding of Happiness and Well-Being, is about this. Well, I have some snide things to say about happiness in my book, Visionary Creativity. You can look that up. 
if you want to follow through, and we're going to do a show about happiness in the future. But Seligman actually quotes Nietzsche's The Camel, the Lion, and the Child and gets it wrong. So I wrote him a letter about it, but didn't get much of a response. (laughs) But there's other books like this, The Genius in All of Us, and The Genius in All of Us, New Insights into Genetics, Talent, and IQ by David Schenk. And this is another book that quotes the 10,000 hours thing and says, we're all geniuses. We are not successful because we don't do the 10,000 hours. If we did the 10,000 hours, we would be. And he looks at a lot of cases. There's a lot of interesting material in the book. He he looks at, for example, Ted Williams. And Ted Williams wasn't just a natural, but practiced continually. He would do things like not read because he he had this incredible eyesight and he didn't want to diminish it. He's also a you know, a hero figure. He took time out of what could have been the greatest career in the history of baseball and is only maybe one of the top three because he took time out during the Korean War to be a fighter pilot. So, but he says that Ted Williams was not a natural but was put in this focused practice. Well, but he doesn't look at Babe Ruth. (laughs) Babe Ruth didn't you know, practiced that hard and was the greatest baseball player of all time. So there are a lot of things that we can really question in these books and and in these approaches. Ramanujan, Indian brilliant mathematician. I don't think if I put in 10,000 hours in mathematics, I could come anywhere near what Ramanujan did. There's another one. The talent code. Greatness isn't born, it's grown. Here's how. So this has just become a fad in these books, and they all stop with the camel. And if you go beyond the camel and you go to the lion, whole new things happen. So the job of the lion is to run out into the desert and to slay a dragon. Fierce battle. I mean, a dragon's a pretty rough animal or creature, whatever kind of thing it is. And we'll talk about that when we come back. So let's take a break, and we'll be right back in a few minutes. You can't always get what you want. You can't always get what you want. Hi everyone, my name is Dr. Michael Walt and I'm proud to announce that I'm the host of a new show right here on PRN every Saturday at 1 o'clock entitled Ask the Blood Detective and as your friendly neighborhood blood detective I'll be exploring all the cutting edge important health topics which will include everything from foods to technology to supplementation and how it impacts your current health so that you can either reach health, maintain good health or shoot for optimal health and longevity. 
But what is different about this show is that I'll be describing and teaching you how to interpret your own laboratory test to find hidden nutritional and health meaning when many other healthcare providers fail to do so. So tune in with me every Saturday at 1 o'clock. Ask the Blood Detective. See you soon. I'm Beanie Cohn-Rose, host of Ask Beanie. I'm a psychotherapist, I'm a sex therapist, and on my show, we talk about love, relationships, and sex. You can also call me and ask me any questions about any problems or issues that you may be struggling with. So join me live every Monday afternoon from 3 to 4 Eastern Standard Time, or you can listen to all of my Ask Beanie shows in the PRN archives by dialing one 701 Why would anyone ride on top of an elevator, lug around an 11-pound large print dictionary, or compete in a swim race unable to see the course? Well, this is me, and I've got some riveting experiences to share with you. Hey, I'm Mark Farrell. Join me for Insight, a new show coming to PRN.FM. It's about overcoming adversity, and who doesn't experience this in some capacity? I'm no doctor, but I'm an expert in me since I've been dealing with various forms of adverse conditions all my life, like having a rare visual disability that challenges much of what I do. Insight, real-life issues, including mental health, anxiety, depression, suicide, drugs, and alcohol. Celebrity guests will also reveal on Insight how they overcame adversity to make it, as well as your calls on challenges you struggle with. My difference makes me stronger. That's my mantra. Listen and discover how your difference makes you stronger. Insight, Thursdays at 11 a.m. only on PRN.FM. So, welcome back to Visionaries. I'm John LaBelle, your host, and you'll find us here on PRN.FM, Mondays at 10 a.m. On Visionaries, we talk about creativity, and today we're looking at Nietzsche's parable of the camel, the lion, and the child, and the dragon. And if you have any thoughts about what we've said so far, or even any past shows, You're welcome to call in. Our number is 888-874-4888. So, phone calls welcome. And back to what we were talking about. And we looked at several books that purport to be about creativity, but they're really about mastery. And mastery is only an early stage. We, We, of course... Think of a symphony orchestra. We want everybody in the orchestra to have mastered their instrument and mastered being musical, but that's different from being a composer. A composer's not going to want to sit in an orchestra playing first violin or second violin. Composer wants to compose, create something totally new. And that's what creativity is about. So nothing wrong with mastery, and we respect those people who do master their discipline and do, you know, <laughs> you, you, you get this real feeling of confidence when the plumber comes 
or the techie, the computer techie comes and you can just tell they know what they're <laughs> they know what they're doing and your problem's going to be solved. That's terrific. No problem, no criticism. That's wonderful. And maybe you don't want them to be creative. You know? Just get my computer back the way it was. Don't don't tell me don't don't tell me you can install this new thing that I'll never that I don't understand. So no creativity here. No creativity appreciated. Uh, but then sometimes we do want creativity, and that's what uh, we're talking about here. And now we go on to realize that when we talk about this real creativity here and this lion, which is potent if it has evolved from a well-loaded camel, a camel that has mastered its culture and mastered its discipline, goes out into the desert. Its job is to destroy a dragon whose name is Thou Shalt. And on every scale of the dragon is written Thou Shalt. So let's look at another book here. This is a real book show, right? I hope you're writing down all the titles. Cool thing about our world today is when I mention one of these books, if you're listening online, you can just pop over to Amazon and look at the summary of the book. Or even in some cases, if it's an important enough book, get the summary on Wikipedia. Well, I'm a real fan of Virginia Postrel, P-O-S-T-R-E-L, her latest book is on glamour. She did a book on style. But the book that's really influential on me is her book, The Future and Its Enemies, The Growing Conflict Over Creativity, Enterprise, and Progress. And Virginia describes two worldviews. There are the stasists and the dynamists. I don't know that those are the best terms, but that's what she used. Stasis are against change, or they're very nervous about it. And there are two kinds of stasis. Those who don't want any change, and really amusingly, those who are in favor of change as long as they can control it. <laughs> well, that means you're only going to get what's knowable. You're not going to get what's unknowable. So I'll tell you a little anecdote some years ago. I'm so terrible with dates, sometime in the 90s. I had built an online service for a company that would do mail order. And at the time, we were using what was called bulletin board software. The internet hadn't taken off yet. So people did, there was no browsers. So I go to a conference and everybody's there. You know, all the telecoms are there and the software companies are there. The word internet was not mentioned once. Next year I go to the conference, it's all anybody was talking about. In other words, the most revolutionary change of the past, what, 100 years, nobody, even in the industry, predicted it one year before it hit. So that tells, should tell us something, which is real creativity, real change is creative and change precisely because it's unpredictable. If it was predictable, we'd predict it and do it. It would already be here. We wouldn't be waiting for it. And the other thing we realize is even when we can see things coming, we don't necessarily understand what they're going to do. Think, for example, of computers. And I recall, you know, following the whole thing. So <laughs> I remember 
Well, there's going to be computers in the home, okay? What are they going to do? Well, in business, you use computers to track inventory. So in the home, the housewife will use the computer to track how many cans of condensed tomato soup there is, and it'll signal when to go buy more. <laughs> I mean, who would have thought there'd be this Echo thing and these other things that Amazon sends you? I don't even understand them, but apparently... They sit on the shelf and they know when your tomato soup's running out and they ship it to you. And in the meantime, you're watching movies. <laughs> Who would have thought we Actually, the TV is gone. Your TV is a computer. It's not a, it's not a TV. It's a computer. And that box sitting up there is a, you know, a full-fledged computer. And your, your, uh, your TV's big flat screen is a monitor. And that's why it can do all that stuff. Well, nobody predicted that, that that's what the computer was going to do. And you've heard me talk before on the show about self-driving cars. And, yeah, everybody's talking about them, but I don't see people really speculating about what they mean. We have, I'm at a school of architecture, we have a Department of City Planning. And what's going to happen if, as may be the case, that once you have self-driving cars, 90% of the cars disappear. My car, I'm embarrassed to say I occasionally use it, uh, <laughs> spends night probably more, but let's just say 90% of its time parked. And I pay for that a lot. I sometimes visit colleagues upstate at universities. You know, I, say, I pay more for parking than you pay for rent on your apartment in this in this beautiful upstate, this beautiful upstate city where you're teaching. But anyway, what happens if they're self-driving Ubers and you don't have a car because whenever you need one, you just tap your smartphone and zip. It shows up. Notice I said smartphone. Who knows what it's going to be in 10 years? But your watch or you blink in your eyeglasses or you think with this chip in your brain. But anyway, zip, it shows up. And it's working 90% of the time instead of park 90%. Well, what does that mean? It means maybe we can get rid of 90% of the parking lots, 90% of the highways. Doesn't mean much for New York. We'll go out and, you know, make lanes in the street where kids can play like they could 100 years ago. But what does it mean for Los Angeles? What are we going to do with those parking lots? Incredible potential there. Look at all that land. Like half of Los Angeles is roads and parking lots. Who, nobody's thinking about that. Nobody's thinking what, what's going to change. Well, anyway, so there are two kinds of stasis. Those want everything to stay the same or even go backwards. And those who say, well, we're all in favor of the future as long as we can control it. <laughs> that's, that's regulators. But then there are dynamists. And the dynamists are in favor of open-ended change. Now, what does that mean? We don't know what that means. That's the point of open-ended creativity. We create something new that we had not anticipated. We don't know what that could be. Nobody anticipated, you know, the Internet. Internet happened slowly. It was there. began as this military link-up. Universities started to use it. Scientists could exchange files. <laughs> But, you know, you didn't really need it because we had FedEx, and that would get it there the next day, so that's almost as good. 
And then all of a sudden, Al Gore really did play a role in this, uh, supporting legislation that people should be able to use the Internet for commercial purposes. And all of a sudden, this stuff happened. It just exploded in directions. We're not happy with all of them. You know, we're annoyed with the invasions of our ourselves, with the unthoughtful junk that gets on there. We can be critical of all that. And but and there's there's a book that I should talk about sometime. I think it's called The Internet is Not the Solution. Is that the name of it? But boy, does he not like the internet. He doesn't like technology. But he then he picks on things like Instagram having bankrupted Kodak. Well, God forbid that I can store my photographs and exchange them without having to buy film from Kodak. And Kodak had every opportunity to create that experience, and they didn't. Kodak created the digital camera. And the scientist at Kodak who created it was told to go away. Take your little toy. There's no interest here. We're a chemical company. Well, they made that choice, and unfortunately for a lot of employees at Kodak, uh, maybe fortunately for all the chemicals that are not getting into the environment from the film industry because we can do it all digitally. But we can't predict these things. They're open-ended. And key point, the lion slays the dragon. True creativity is destructive. For everything it creates, it's destroying things. We can't predict what it's going to destroy. Driverless cars, what's going to go away? What's going to disappear? Who knows? Uh, I'm saying parking lots and lanes on the highway, but and private cars, because you just use driverless Ubers, but things I'm not predicting, just like nobody predicted what the home computer was going to be used for. Nobody predicted we'd be watching movies on it. And as the point I made, we're not just watching movies on our laptops. That big flat screen in your living room is a computer. That's a monitor. That box sitting on top of it is a computer. If you have a smart flat screen, it's a full computer in there. And if you hook it up right, you can do all your surfing on there, and etc. So what Virginia Postrel is talking about in The Future and Its Enemies is the future is, by definition, open-ended. And some people who don't want that open-endedness are against it or want to regulate it, want to control it, want to predict it, and those are the enemies. So that's one more book for you to put on your list, think about. And so our lion slays this dragon, this creature who is named Thou Shalt, and who on every scale of which is written Thou Shalt. Now, Nietzsche then finally says, even the lion cannot create the new. It can only destroy the old. To create the new says, to create new values, the lion is not capable of this, but to create the freedom to create new values, this is within the lion's power. The lion, though, then becomes a child. The child is innocence and forgetting, a new beginning. The child 
a wheel rolling out of its own center. So think of your field and think of the people in your field who have created the new. I'm going to mention a few that one of them's in my field, but Beethoven mastered the Viennese Symphony. That was his camel stage. He could write a Viennese Symphony as well as Mozart or Haydn could. He totally mastered that. But then he went on and launched Romanticism. So beginning with the Third Symphony and most famously in the Fifth, in Romanticism, he creates the Romantic Hero and a totally new kind of music where the structure is bent to the emotion rather than the emotion being fitted within the structure. Picasso had mastered classical painting by the time he dropped out of the academy. And then again and again, he shatters old conventions, first with Les Demoiselles d'Avignon, that he was so nervous about for years he didn't, he didn't exhibit it. He kept it in his studio facing the wall and just showed it to a few people. And then he and Brock worked together to create Cubism, which was, you know, the classical first phase of Cubism was brief, but it opened up floodgates of possibilities. Thelonious Monk worked with the jazz greats of his day in the creation of bebop before entering his own very different world. One of my professors, Robert Venturi, attacked modernism. He wrote a book called Complexity and Contradiction in Architecture, and around the same time he designed a house for his mother. That's, that's all he could get for a client. <laughs> you know, you're launching your career as an architect, and, well, maybe my parents, <laughs> maybe I can do a house for my parents or an uncle or something. So he does what we call Venturi's mother's house, which didn't look like a modern house. It looked like a weird version of a conventional suburban house. You weren't supposed to do that. And at that time, uh, well, of course, architecture is a religion. All fields are religions, and they have their orthodoxies. And anybody who violates the orthodoxy is an apostate, right? It has to be done away with. So Venturi was vilified. People went berserk. And he, in complexity and contradiction in architecture, he was proposing an alternative to modern architecture, which was simple and direct. So you're supposed to be simple and direct. You need a room, you make a box. You know, you need a house, you make a glass box. It's simple and direct. It's clear. This is what it is. No frills. And Venturi said, you know, shouldn't architecture reflect life? And life is not simple and direct. It's, in fact, complex and contradictory. So our architecture should be complex and contradictory. So, but Venturi totally understood the modern masters whom he was criticizing. And so while maybe we go so far as to say helping in the destruction of modern architecture, he fully understood it and then launched something new. So our theme today has been Friedrich Nietzsche's parable from 
Thus spoke Tharasustra of the camel, the lion, the child, and the dragon, and how we encounter the world that we live in and how if we are predisposed that way, and not saying we all should, but those who are going to be creative are going to challenge the orthodoxy of the day, are going to find where is does something doesn't make sense, where something is missing. And the visionary creatives who do this see, and I'm quoting now from something here, visionary creatives see that our world is no longer what we had thought it to be and that a new world is struggling to be born. They wonder what is wrong with others that they do not also see this and they are driven to produce works that will help all of us experience what they experience. And we, on encountering these works, are changed and we enter new worlds. So I think that we can find this creativity everywhere. Maybe in some of our circles, certainly in my circles, we're biased toward the arts and maybe biased against business. But this kind of creativity is in art, technology, science, business, and the people who may launch a new style of art, they may launch a new business. They may launch a new technology. And this technology not only is, exists in itself, it, it's a technology that permits this or that, but it really sneaks in a totally new model of the world. So if we think about Facebook, and of course, there are lots of things we don't like about Facebook. But think about what it's doing in terms of how all the people that you're, <laughs> to use the stupid word, friends with, are linked. And then not only are people being linked, but people are linked to pictures and websites and to each other. And pictures are linked to other pictures. Whole new patterns are going on of what becomes possible, and it implies the world being wired in, together in totally new and different ways. So what's the famous phrase from Steve Jobs when Apple fired him way back, you know, the first time around? He said, they went linear on me. And so, you know, that linear thinking as opposed to a holistic interactive thinking. Jobs was already thinking that way years ago. Well, any thoughts, agreements, disagreements, phone calls are welcome at 888-874-4888. And we're talking today about the idea of visionary creativity and best explaining it through the works of Friedrich Nietzsche and his parable of the camel, the lion, the child, and the dragon. And so if we think about our world today and the world that is being creative in the arts, in 
technology, I like to use a metaphor of George Surratt's Sunday Afternoon in the Park painting. That I know that's not the real name, but that's good enough. And we look at that from a distance, and the figures are very static, classical, stately. And then we zoom in, and we discover that there are all these dots, and they have this churning-like quality. The closer we go, the more fuzzy and the more dot light it gets. And we've realized that we can take this as a metaphor for saying the world and we are clusters of interconnected fractal networks computationally generating themselves and each other. And so there are creative figures today who see this totally new world and are creating things to bring it to all of us. Some of the figures that I admire who saw the world this way, John Bell tragically died young, but we know him for Bell's Theorem. It shows how particles reflect each other even across the universe. So he built on the work of Einstein, Poldowski, and Rosen, the EPR paper, and showed that if two particles become entangled, they reflect each other instantaneously even across the universe. So what you do to one particle is going to affect the other particle faster than the speed of light no matter where they are. Now, technically you can't send information that way, so Einstein's prohibition stays in effect. But other weird things do happen, and we are today building quantum computers and quantum cryptology based on this understanding. Well, what does this imply? It implies that things are, space distance is not what we thought it was. It's some whole other thing. I'm a big fan of Lynn Margulies, Symbiogenesis. And she totally challenges Darwin's notion of evolution. So yes, there's evolution. There are creatures on the planet today who are descended from creatures in the past that were different. But what caused this difference to come about? And Darwin said, gradual change over long periods of time with natural selection, sorting out and leading to uh, change. And well, that just doesn't fit the facts. And we have um, Eldridge and Stephen Jay Gould's punctuated equilibrium telling us, no, it's very different from that. It happens very suddenly. Well, they give it a name, punctuated equilibrium, and then they're happy. But it doesn't explain how and why. And Margulis explains that whole genomes are being moved from species to species, and what's carrying it around is bacteria. And so the bacteria in our body is equal in weight almost to the weight of our brain. 90% of the DNA in our body is the bacterial DNA. It's interacting with our DNA. Every time you sneeze, you're blowing it around, interchanging it with other people, other creatures. We have a lot of cat DNA in us from our cats. Virus moves DNA around. And so it's all these fractal interconnected networks moving around and this thinking revolutionizing biology. And then one of my, another one of my favorite figures, Stephen Wolfram, who likes to say, 
Well, Wolfram did a lot of work with cellular automata, showing how simple rules can build very complex structures. And he says, I think when I find the code that generates our world, it'll be about six lines. So <laughs> our world is made out of six lines of computer code. So now this whole new way of thinking, and if we look at things that we admire, think about what underlies the way these people that you admire are thinking. I'm a fan of Carver Mead, who, when he was a student of Feynman, said, you know, this uh, electrodynamics has not been really updated to work with quantum theory. And Feynman said, yeah, I know, I got to fix it, and never did. So Carver Mead did in his book, A Collective Electrodynamics, in which he shows that electrons are not objects, but they're patterns of relationships. Mark Zuckerberg in Facebook, and again, all the things we are unhappy about Facebook, but we've got to think about what it means about the way that it's networked, these things. Elon Musk with his Tesla, is the real revolution that the Tesla is electric, or is it going to be that it is not a computer on wheels, but maybe even a social network on wheels? And next week I have to go to Mines and machines, so General Electric is rebelling itself as a digital industrial company. And in so doing, um, it is totally incorporating these kinds of ideas into how it works. So stuff to think about and to be willing to think that if we're going to allow this well-loaded camel to become a lion— this lion's going to destroy a dragon, and a dragon is everything we already currently believe in, and what's it going to bring us next? So this is John LaBelle. You've been listening to Visionaries. I'm here every Monday at 10 a.m. You can find our past shows at visionaries.podbean.com. V-I-S-I-O-N-A-R-I-E-S dot P-O-D-B-E-A-N as in Nancy dot com. And in a few days, you'll be able to see or hear today's show. If you want to tell anybody about it, just email them that link, and they can pick up this show. They can pick up any of our past shows. And we look forward to having you back for more interesting guests, more discussions of the future. Thank you.